Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I have a very interesting and very special guest um, who has told me before I, she, she agreed to come onto my program that she was not doing interviews anymore, but because of a mutual friend, Allison, uh, kind of told her a little bit about me. And also I explained to her how, yes, I know you've been on Mormon Stories, and yes, you've been on Gospel Tangents, but um, your story needs to be told uh, as many places as possible, because I think you're a very unique and, and important person in the history of 20th and 21st century Mormon fundamentalism. I want to welcome to the program, Ann Wild. Welcome. Thank you. So I, Ann uh, sent me this book called Voices in Harmony, Contemporary Women Celebrate Plural Marriage, which came out about 20 years ago in regards to the uh, Winter Olympics to kind of be the public voice and face of Mormon fundamentalism. And we're going to talk about that book and what led up to it. But before we get to that, and not everybody in my audience is familiar with you. Um, I'd like for you to tell your story. Sure. Well, first of all, I was born and raised in the uh, mainstream LDS church. I went to BYU on a scholarship, graduated with honors. Um, a year later, I married in the temple in monogamy. and. Uh, that marriage ended in nine years, just for differences of opinion. We agreed pretty much on religious principles and going back to study the doctrines as they were taught by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And that seemed to make sense to me. Uh, during that nine-year marriage, we met several people that today we would term as fundamentalists. That term was not used very much uh, at that time. This is in the... Uh, late 50s, early 60s. But um, uh, I began to realize that maybe the, the church had changed some of their teachings. They weren't teaching the same thing as Joseph Smith and the early leaders. And that began to be kind of a challenge to me to find out, well, which, which is the truth, the early principles and doctrines or the ones that were taught today. So long story short, I've been and to do a lot of reading. My first husband was very knowledgeable about church history and the scriptures. But even though our marriage ended in divorce, I valued that time because I learned a lot about the gospel. Um, one of the people we met during that nine-year marriage was um, a man by the name of Alvin Crowell. And um, it was shortly after our divorce was final that I became his second wife. Um, and then, of course, uh, that was just the beginning of his putting together information on different gospel principles. And he started writing books. I was a typist, and so I typed them. Um, over a period of 33 years, he wrote over 65 books, wrote and compiled. And I was his typist, the editor, and we worked very closely together. And um, I felt that it was a real honor and a privilege to work with him. I learned a lot about uh, various doctors that he wrote books on. Um, let's see, um, he passed away in 2002, and um, I felt for that whole time of our marriage of 33 years that that was my mission to help him put out these publications. And so when he passed away, I kind of wondered, well, now what's my mission? But shortly before that time, there were two other girls Mary Batchelor and Mary Ann Watson and myself 
that got together and decided, you know, the only thing that was really publicized um, were the negative aspects of plural marriage. And here we were, three plural wives that were very happy, adjusted, and, and pleased to live that principle. So we thought, if we don't say something, who's going to? The reason other people haven't come out is because in the state of Utah, plural marriage had been a felony since 1935. And it was too risky for them to come out and admit their lifestyle. And uh, that was the same with us too. But we're very strongly impressed that something should be done to show the other side of the picture. And so that's when we decided to write this book. Uh, briefly, it's a compilation of about 100 testimonies and experiences from women anonymously who were plural wives. And there is, very briefly, their positive experiences, even though they had challenges, they were very interested in sharing why they were living plural marriage. And um, so that kind of opened the door. I mean, up until then, none of us had been public, but we knew that that was what was gonna happen. And so we were willing to take that risk. And as soon as that book came out, of course, we had calls from New York Times and all over the place. Oh, here's three women that are speaking on the positive side of plural marriage. That was something they hadn't heard before. And one of the people that contacted us was the Attorney General's office from the state of Utah, Mark Turtlett. And he had wanted, he wanted to visit with us. So the three of us went up there, had a very good visit. And he said, I'm so glad that you spent this time because all I've heard are stories uh, of a negative nature from women who had left plural marriage or wanted to leave it or had problems with it. And so we explained, of course, why the, those of us had not come out because of the risk involved. But uh, anyway, we worked closely with him the time he was in office and he agreed that he would not prosecute polygamous as long, adult consenting polygamous as long as there were no other crimes uh, evident. And so well, we explained, well, of course, there's already laws on the books for fraud and any kind of fraud and go ahead and, and prosecute or, or deal with that. But the actual living of a plural family and a plural marriage um, as adults, didn't, we didn't feel like that to be considered a felony. So anyway, over the time, over the time he was in office, he agreed with that and uh, we appreciated his point of view. Um, Let's see, I guess I could go from there to, uh, in 2002, uh, our book came out in Dece December of 2000. So approximately a year later, because the Olympics were in the very first part of 2002, um, <clears throat> when the Olympics came to Salt Lake, we had become very well known locally with the media and some outside. And so, um, when we understood that they were going to come here, and of course, reporters from all over the world, uh, we thought, gee, one of our missions in coming public is to try and help people outside the culture understand why we live it and that we should not be considered as felons. Um, the stereotypes that were out there were not true, uh, basically, and so we wanted our, one of our missions was to try and explain to people more about the principle and that it was a, a viable lifestyle by free choice. 
So we thought, well, here's all this, all these reporters coming to Salt Lake. How can we get some information to them about this, our mission and what we were doing? So we made up 200 packets of uh, all kinds of information and uh, contact information as well. And so we began getting many phone calls and uh, it was interesting to see the first ones that came, uh, of course, had never talked to living, breathing, plural wives. And so uh, we could tell on our first interview that they didn't even know what kind of questions to ask. So we got together after the first interview and decided we have to set some perimeters. And so we began to formulate a kind of a pattern and it worked very well. One of the things we made clear was that we would not answer questions regarding names and numbers of wives and children in each of our families, that that was not our right to tell that. Um, our personal relationship with the LDS Church, um, because each of us had a little bit different relationship. But one thing I made clear is that we lived plural marriage separate from the LDS Church, that those that were members were excommunicated if they did live it. Um, but we um, felt like it was an eternal principle that we could live if we were willing to pay the price of our membership. Uh, and the third thing was our, anything that went on in the bedroom, that was private. And then we said, but on the other hand, you're free to ask questions regarding customs, history, day-to-day uh, -day activities. We gave them you know, quite a, a few areas that we would be glad to ask, answer questions. And so that really helped in our future interviews because you could tell that these people didn't know what kind of questions to ask. And so they were very relieved and uh, our interviews went very well. We had dozens of interviews from reporters all over the world and many of the states. Um, so that was kind of uh, a learning experience for us and helping us know the proper way to go about interviews. Um, the three of us also were asked to do several presentations, uh, such as university classes, uh, the annual meeting of attorneys in Utah, the police. I mean, it was really kind of intimidating at first to think that here we were speaking to policemen as three felons. All they had to do is arrest us. <laughs> but we wanted people to understand more about the lifestyle, and, and nobody was doing that. So that's why we took that responsibility upon our shoulders. So it's really interesting because, you know, this book uh, came out for the Olympics and you well, started- Well, it came out not really for that purpose, but we used it. Used it that. as a tool to, to educate the world, if you will. And when you think about in 20 years period, how it's led to the decriminalization of polygamy, it's also led to, when you think about more mainstream acceptance of the principle within society at large, when you think of television programs, and I know it's an exaggeration, but like Big Love that was on HBO, and then also um, the, the other stories, the Sister Wives programs that are on television, it's become part of mainstream Americana. And you could argue that this effort that you made played a big role in doing that. Well, we were glad when um, Big Love came out, a little bit cautious because we didn't know how they were gonna present it, none of the producers or people involved in that had talked to us or any polygamists that we knew of. 
And so we were a little concerned about how they'd present it. Uh, the first season we felt was too, uh, had too many sexual innuendos or whatever, didn't have really enough religious conversation, which is our main reason for living it. And I'll, uh, I was surprised when after the first season, we got a call from the New York Times and they wanted to come out and interview some actual plural wives to see what our reaction was to big love. So they came to our living room and we spoke with them and we mentioned our concerns about those two things. And the second season had already been taped, but the other seasons we noticed a, at least a little improvement. They actually had a prayer before the food. It was a little bit more of a religious connection and not quite so much of the sexual part. Uh, we realized this is Hollywood or so to speak, uh, representing them. And it uh, was not uh, intended to try and promote polygamy by any means, but it did open people's eyes that, oh, this can be lived. This is just a regular family living in a regular subdivision. He had a regular job. And I think it really helped to open people's eyes that this could be lived as long as everybody was an adult and consenting to it. So we appreciated that aspect of it. And then when Sister Wives came along, um, I recommended the family, I talked to them and they agreed to do that. Um, and the first uh, two or three seasons, I thought were fine. It was a family that was getting along very well, uh, represented, we didn't like reality shows. So it was kind of a combination between reality and a documentary. Uh, but then as if people have watched it at all, it has become really, I feel bad for the family and I know them and I wondered if they've ever thought back and thought maybe we shouldn't have done it because the family now is quite fragmented. Uh, they've had all kinds of issues that have been brought out on the show, which that was not the original intent, but that was the story of their family. I think they have one more final episode and that's uh, about the, but they've been on, well, if you look at the reference of it, 16 seasons, some of the seasons have been very short, but um, it really was the most popular show on TLC for quite a while. Um, so anyway, those shows have really been helpful, I think, in, in trying to open people's eyes that this could be a, li a viable lifestyle between consenting adults. And so as a result of that and the many presentations we made for nearly 20 years, polygamy was virtually decriminalized. Two years ago this month, uh, it was made an infraction, which is the same thing as getting a traffic ticket. Um, and that really has taken a lot of the um, fear out of living polygamy and being known. And now there aren't too many people that are gonna come out public and admit they live it, but they don't have to live in fear that somebody's gonna find out, they're gonna come and arrest the dad and the family will be all upset. Um, so I feel like that's been a, a big step in what we were trying to accomplish for those 20 years. So I think I wanna roll back a little bit because I'm glad we had this conversation about the last 20 years, but I, I wanna kind of go back a little bit and talk about the legacy of Ogden Kraut. Um, okay. You know, I've, I've, I've been familiar with his work for a long time. I've read some of his, his stuff. Uh, I, I've watched also uh, Kevin Kraut's videos on YouTube as well. And I've had conversations with him folks and I'll probably be having him on soon. 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting because he, I would argue, uh, in one sense, you could say he was the patriarch of modern Mormon fundamentalism in the 20th century. And he was the intellectual uh, theologian, if you will, of the movement. Maybe just talk to that a bit. Well, I think that might be pushing the definition a little bit. Okay. Um, Joseph Smather, I think, was really called the father of fundamentalism uh, in the early 50s, well, 40s and 50s. Um, Ogden, I think, is very well respected by the various groups, but he never joined any of them. Um, his books, I think, as far as I know, because we've sold them to the various members and to the independents. Now, maybe I ought to make clear, first of all, that among fundamentalist Mormons are different groups and independents. And we considered ourselves an independent because we didn't join any of the groups but we respected them. We had friends in many of them. Um, and we got to a point as principal voices that we all were able to work together on certain projects. Um, Ogden um, started writing, uh, he was the state gospel doctrine leader at that time, which meant that the ward instructors would come once a month and listen to him kind of prepare information that they might find useful in their weekly classes. One of the questions that came up was about Jesus bearing Mary. And they were so interested in it and he didn't, he, he knew his own opinion, but he was not at liberty to really, so he thought, I'm going to research that some more, maybe write something on it. So he went home, and uh, that's exactly what he did. And as a result, his most popular book, Jesus Was Married, was published in 1969. Um, shortly after that, he was called in by um, his state president. And he said, I received this letter from Mark E. Peterson asking me to call you in and ask you why you thought you had the authority to write a book such as that when it was so controversial and the church hadn't made a definite um, stand on that. So long story short, because of that, Ogden really just said, well, I took the book, first copy of the book into Joseph Fielding Smith. And he said, oh, absolutely. It could be no other way. The account of his marriage is right in the New Testament, referring to the marriage of Canaan. But as a result, um, Brother Peterson decided that his books and he wrote some other subsequent books were too controversial. So he had them hold a court on him and he was eventually excommunicated from the church. He was not bitter at all against the church. In fact, both of us have been very supportive of the church in many ways. Uh, they do a lot of good and we do not want to be seen as out bashing the mainstream LDS church. Um, but he still nevertheless felt like his mission was to write about the early teachings of the LDS church and then let the chips fall for their name. Um, so as a result of his desire to express this, he wrote about 65 books. Some of them were compiled. Most of them were his own writings on such subjects as the three Nephites, the gift of tongues, calling an election, polygamy in the Bible. I mean, it goes on and on. But um, it was, I can't tell you how interesting and worthwhile I felt my role in that was because of the many people that we met, thousands of people from all over the world, really, 
and all over the United States. They'd find his books or have them referred to him. They'd read him and um, they'd want to come and ask him questions and talk to him and get to know him. So he was very well known among certain circles. Uh, he's been gone now for nearly 20 years. Uh, the demand for his books, of course, has diminished. However, his son, Kevin Kraut, has tried to keep um, the books that run out of print, uh, reprint them so they would be available. Um, anyway, I just can't say enough about what a good man he was, how honest he, in my estimation, how honest he was in his dealings and his writings. Um, he, he was just, I felt very lucky to be one of his wives. So, um, you know, so he wrote 65 books now. As I was reading a pamphlet that um, Kevin put out about how Ogden kind of had like a vision of a book uh, that kind of started this whole thing that, 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 would, that he realized that he was going to be the author of that book or something along those lines. Well, yeah, he had, uh, and I don't know if it was an open vision, um, it was close to it, some type of a vision where a messenger came to him before he started writing and uh, opened, had a big book and he opened it up in front of Ogden and he said, these are the books you, or the subjects you write on and it was called Enzyme to the Nations. And um, he uh, awoke from the experience, however that was, it was very real to him, however. And um, he realized that that was his mission then is uh, to start writing these. And of course, Jesus was married was his first one. So, uh, and the 65, those are just the ones that uh, didn't, doesn't count the um, pamphlets, the books he printed for other people. I mean, he was always printing or writing for the whole time I knew him. So I guess one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is um, a parallel thing going on around the same time was that the Tanners, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, were kind of doing a similar thing that you guys are doing. In other words, they were investigating early church history and they were disseminating information to people that wasn't necessarily being disseminated by the, the, the church in, in Salt Lake City. And so it's almost like you guys were kind of on parallel trajectories and actually Ogden and Gerald ended up being very good friends. Well, the interesting thing there, and we knew Gerald and Sandra Tanner, um, uh, is they, researched early church history and came to a little different conclusion than, than Ogden did. Um, they, Ogden was in defense of Joseph Smith and his teachings, not so much Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Uh, however, we were never uh, considered to be enemies or anything like that. It's just that we each had a different perspective on the history of the church, and that's fine. I mean, that's the whole what free agency is all about. So just maybe talk a little bit about Gerald and Ogden's unique friendship? Well, I wasn't there when they had this unique friendship. It's only what I heard Ogden talk about. Um, I think Ogden told him at one time, well, you wrote, let's see. Uh, oh, I wrote about things and believed it all. You wrote about things and didn't believe it. 
or something to that effect. Maybe you, mm -hmm. I think you knew more about that particular conversation than I did. Yeah, I think he said. But I think it was yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet they were still on a friendly basis. They yeah. both died about the same year. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting because when I was out in Utah in June, uh, Sandra in, invited me to her um, bookstore on a Sunday. She opened it up for me and Rick Bennett to have like a three hour off the record conversation. And I just asked her, what kind of man was Ogden Kraut? And she talked very highly of him. And then I asked her about, um, what did you think of, of you? And she also said like, yeah, you know, I didn't know like her situation or rumors about her being a plural wife, but I just knew like he was, she was like an editor or secretary. And then she said, but then as years went on, uh, Anne and I got to be friends. And I just think that's a wonderful uh, thing to think about. Right, yeah. And I have every respect for her. I mean, she's very knowledgeable. She's very friendly. She comes to a lot of the, like MHA and Sunstone and is very open. Uh, I, I think that's uh, very admirable that knowing that she's among people like LDS people whom don't go along with her particular perspective. And yet she's very open to coming out for those meetings. Yeah, very much so. And folks, I just wanna say, you know, I did have the opportunity to talk to Sandra about her upcoming book that's gonna be published by Signature Books. And there are chapters devoted uh, to Ogden Kraut, uh, the, the relationship, there, there's some anecdotes and Good. stories that are in the book about them, so. Well, Ogden was really at heart a peacemaker. I don't know of anybody that, they might disagree with his religious beliefs and things like that, but if they went and visited with him, they came away as a friend. He has had a, an amazing way of uh, talking about, to people with a sense of humor, with open-mindedness. He was always willing to listen to people and their perspective. Um, and I just admired him very much for that. So, you know, one of the things we talked about the other day was that you, when you first started encountering um, doctrines that would, which we would term as fundamentalist, you had said that it was kind of like a step-by-step -step conversion process that you went through. You gave me an example of like the Adam-God doctrine slash uh -huh. theory, depending on where your perspective is. Maybe just talk a little bit about your conversion from uh, conventional LDS to a more uh, to fundamentalism. Sure. I was a Molly Mormon, so to speak. I mean, I was raised uh, in the church. Um, I went to BYU, thought it was absolutely the most wonderful university in the world. Uh, married in the temple. I did all the right things. I was just a very good little girl. And during that first marriage, as I mentioned before, I began learning there was a difference in the teachings today and previously. So, um, and then especially when I married Alden and began um, uh, learning about, the, I mean, he'd take each doctrine and, and take the history of it and go right on through. And he made it so clear that I just was converted with each one. Now, the Adam God doctrine was a little bit different than just the regular reading and believing. Um, when I first learned about that, and he did write a book called Michael Adam, explaining the Adam God doctrine. Um, it just, it was so clear. It was as if I had heard it before. And I did have a spiritual experience regarding that. And I don't want to go into it. It's kind of private, but it's something I just, could never deny is if somebody really had that doctrine explained to them, um, even read Ogden's book on Michael Adam, I can see 
that there's a way that if they had an open mind at all, that they would be influenced to think that there was some truth to that. But it has to be explained. You know, I mean, in Ogden's book, he took a step by step. And so it has to be explained properly because I think some people have a wrong understanding of what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young taught. Joseph Smith actually taught it too, not as openly as Brigham Young did though. You know, you had mentioned, uh, first of all, that you guys decided to remain independent and never join another group. And you also mentioned to me that you, you kind of wanted to discuss some of the differences between the LDS, the FLDS, and oh, fundamentalism. Right. Maybe talk One of the main that. things we really made a, an issue of when we talked to classes and things like that is that people didn't understand the difference between LDS church, FLDS, Fundamentalists, I mean, they all have different connotations. Number one, uh, we didn't want the fundamentalist Mormons to be confused with the mainstream Mormons. So we had to explain that. And then LDS and FLDS were two different things. But when people that didn't know about the LDS church much heard FLDS and with Warren Jeffs and the negative publicity they got, they thought that was the whole LDS church. And that was incorrect. So we had to make sure they understood that FLDS was Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. It was a separate organization completely. Um, they were headquartered in the uh, Short Creek area, which was Hilldale and Colorado City. Um, they, um, their leader was Warren Jeffs in recent years. He's now in prison. Uh, I, they had to know, or we wanted them to know the difference between LDS and FLDS. Um, and then fundamentalists generally wanted people to know the difference between a fundamentalist Mormon and FLDS, which had fundamentalists in the title. But um, in, when you talk about a fundamentalist Mormon, it usually refers to somebody that's either an independent and doesn't belong to any group or somebody that belongs to one of the groups like they call it the All Red Group, AUB, uh, Centennial Park, which separated from FLDS, Kingston Group, or Davis County Co-op. Um, there are other smaller breakouts as well, but um, they don't like to be confused with the FLDS because they don't do some of the things that FLDS did. So that was one of the things we tried to make clear is that please don't confuse FLDS with LDS or with fundamentalist Mormons that don't belong to that particular group. So, and it's interesting, and I'm glad you made a distinction there because I think it's important that people realize there are differences. I guess I just, what was the reason? I guess there's actually a lot of independent fundamentalists, but in particular, what was Ogden's reasoning that he wanted to remain independent and not join with another group or start a group? Well, that I, there's no doctrine that says you join a group or don't join a group. It's just his own feelings after prayer and research. Um, he, he, in his heart, didn't feel like it was right for him to join a group. Um, and one thing, there was a, a main person as a leader and he didn't want to give all his allegiance to that one man who was head of a particular group. However, he was, very interested in making friends and, and associating with members of the different groups. And we knew some of the leaders, we knew a lot of the members of the different groups um, and he respected them and certainly thought it was fine that they chose for themselves 
a group or whatever. We have people coming from England and all over coming to say, well, we understand there's different groups, which one should we join? And so Ogden could not recommend one. And so what he would do is he would give the names of like a leader of a group or one of the council members or something and said, here's these people claim to have keys of the priesthood, go talk to them in person and see how you feel. And so I appreciated that too, because there were a lot of people that just expected him to give them answers and he refused to do that. That was something that they should decide for themselves. And uh, the same thing, they'd come, well, where can we find a plural wife? Well, that's, he, it wasn't his role to play Cupid. So he would just say, that's between you and the Lord. And that's something that you, you know, study, you get a testimony of, you pray to the Lord. And, you know, that's, that's a personal decision I can't tell you. Hmm. Hmm. And, um, and I was glad for that because he didn't want to be considered the leader of any group. Or he hardly was, <laughs> was, he was the leader of our family, but he was such a kind person that he very always considered the position and the opinions of his family. And I was glad for that. We got along so well. It was just a, a marvelous marriage for 33 years. You know, I think um, it speaks a lot to his character. And one of the things that I find interesting is there are excesses within fundamentalism, unfortunately, in which men might take their position and be abusive. And I think you had talked to me the other day about how you want to differentiate between consenting adults and it being everything legal, no, no fraud, um, and also that uh, and no child brides. And, and so maybe talk to that too. Well, that's one of the things that Principal Voices, the three of us kind of formed an organization called Principal Voices. Very, it wasn't one we were trying to uh, have people join. It was just something that we could refer to ourselves as. But that's one of the reasons that uh, we wanted to educate our own people, meaning fundamentalists, not necessarily polygamists, because not all of them live polygamy. But we wanted to educate them as well as people outside the culture because Many of the people that were fundamentalists were under the understanding that the law read that as long as the individual, whether they were 14 or 16 or whatever, had the consent of their parents to become a second wife or whatever, it was okay that the law was okay. But that isn't the way the law read. The law read that if uh, somebody under like say 14, I think until it was changed, um, that referred to a legal marriage, not a priesthood sealing. And so we had to explain to them that that was statutory rape if they gave permission for their 14-year-old daughter to become a thorough wife of maybe an 18, 19-year-old man. And that was news to them. They just didn't quite understand that. They thought it applied to them. But since that was not a legal marriage, it did not apply to them. And so I think it... it um, improved the situation. I don't think it eliminated it totally. Uh, we were hoping it would, but I don't know. We have no way of going around and checking, but we always recommended that at least 16, preferably 18, before anyone got married. Um, I thought, you know, one of the things that we also talked about the other day was you, I'd asked you, what do you think about like gay marriage? 
and civil unions and all that kind of stuff. And maybe just speak to that. Um, we got asked that question so often, and what do you think about the blacks and the gays? My answer has always been, we feel like they're entitled to equal civil rights, the same as that's all we were asking for. Uh, we did not have equal civil rights because it was a felony. So that's what we were aiming for. We feel like the blacks and the gays and anyone else, uh, as long as they're not criminals, should be entitled to equal civil rights. And so that's an interesting thing. You know, I remember watching um, the very first um, Sister Wives episode when it came out because I was curious. And first of all, I thought, boy, they couldn't have picked a better representation at the time. You know, of course, we've seen where the show's gone, but I thought they that was one of the things that they talked about the, very clearly was we believe in civil rights and that, um, that we support gay marriage as a result. And I thought that was interesting because when people think of fundamentalism in the American context, they think of it not necessarily embracing gay rights within the context of Christian. Uh, well, there's there's different ways of you know putting out a perspective on that, and that's as far as we'll go mm -hmm. as equal civil civil rights. Yeah, and that's that's fascinating to me. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about actually was just communicating with Chris Bench yesterday, and I'm going to have him come on my program to talk about one benchmark benchmark books and his father's legacy, uh, Kurt Bench. I'd like, you worked, at, you worked at Benchmark Books for a long time. And maybe just, let's just talk a little bit about Kurt and reminisce about his legacy. Um, to me, um, I was married to one and worked for another one for 26 years of the most outstanding men that I knew. Um, I worked for Kurt um, when he was closing out the Desert Book Store of new used and rare books. And I worked for him for the last six weeks full time to help him close out. And I didn't know him very well, but he carried some of our books, our Pioneer Press, Alden Kraut books. And so uh, I was just chatting with him about closing it. And I thought, gee, I'm so sorry to hear about that. And he said, well, there were two reasons. One was there was an employee that had done a serious amount of embezzling and dishonesty and the other one was the Mark Hoffman situation. Mm -hmm. And the church no longer wanted to deal in used books. Um, so uh, he was going to go into business for himself and decided on the name of Benchmark Books. And um, after the end of the six weeks that I worked for him, that was the end of the year. And he had his own uh, place of uh, setting up his bookshop. It was very small, it was just him. And I think his dad and um, his wife helped him a little bit, but he said, well, when I'm ready to hire a full-time person or at least a part-time, um, would you be available? And I said, I absolutely would. So in April, I think it was the ending, ending of March or the first part of April, he called, could you work for me a couple of days a week? Because he had built up his business to that point where he needed somebody to help with the mailing and all that. So I did, I began working for him I think it was two and a half days to begin with. But um, just long story short, in working with Kurt, I got to know him very well, his character. And I can honestly say, I, with Ogden included, uh, he was the most honest, knowledgeable businessman I had ever been around. And besides that, in addition to that, he had a great sense of humor. And he was just, so well respected. It was kind of like 
people that go in and met Ogden and like them, people go in and you couldn't help but like Kurt. Um, I felt very fortunate to have worked closely with both of those men. Um, through the years, uh, I also realized, to, like an example of his honesty, he would take books on consignment occasionally, very expensive ones usually, and then he'd say, I think I can get this much for it. And so he says, I can pay you this much. And I don't know how many times he would, I would make out the checks for the company and he would make them out more than what he quoted to the person because he was able to sell it for a little more. But they didn't know that. He could have just quoted and given them the original amount and they were perfectly happy with that. But many times if he got more than what he thought he could get and it was honestly priced, then he would go back to the person and pay them the additional amount. And uh, that's just one small example really of how he dealt with his customers. Um, he had to please both the buyer and the seller because he both bought and sold books. And he was so fair and honest with both sides. Yeah, I'll tell you, I last June when I attended the Mormon History Association, it was a Saturday or it was a Friday or a Saturday. And I just remember I went and was talking with Shannon Flynn. And I was talking with him and of course he's was Mark Hoffman's right-hand man for a while there. And uh, and I just was telling him uh, how much I appreciated uh, him on Murder Among the Mormons and also his interviews he did on Gospel Tangents and just found him to be a fascinating person. And next thing you know, here comes Kurt walking over to me and he introduces himself and, and, and he, and he asked about me, he was very interested in hearing my story. And he was very gentle and kind and genuinely interested in hearing what I had to say or just, and I, I was so impressed by him as a human being. Um, another thing I admired about him along those lines, um, I don't think he really knew that I was a plural wife at the time he hired me. He had heard uh, comments and rumors to that effect. But it didn't really matter. When he did find out, he said, it doesn't make a bit of difference to me. I mean, I'd already proved myself as a valuable employee. And uh, in fact, when I told him, you know, I've got to retire pretty soon. This is when I was about 79 uh, or 78. He says, oh, give me at least a year's notice <laughs> you know, because he had to find somebody else. But um, he just, uh, I don't know, I just can't say enough good about him. He was just an absolutely outstanding uh, person to work with and for. He um, hired some very excellent people through the years that I was there. Um, I saw how he was a husband and a dad to his children, uh, which is just exemplary. So I can't say anything you know negative about him at all. So. Um... And of course, folks, I think to myself, I was talking to Shannon Flynn and Kurt Bench, and they both passed away. And I wanted to have them both on my program. So oh, I guess it's right. just a reminder, folks, if you have an opportunity to, that's why I'm having doing this program is I want to hear all the voices and, and document these stories because it's so important. Uh -huh. My friend Christopher Thomas, when he went and visited Benchmark Books recently, he saw that there was a section of books, uh, a section devoted to Ogden Kraut uh -huh. and his books. And he said that Kurt Bench, I'll tell you, to think that he would dedicate a section uh, to Ogden like that says a lot about him, but also 
I was talking to Brett Metcalf and uh, did an interview with him. But that's yep. a, another thing I admired about Kurt is that he carried all kinds of books as long as they were not really critical against the LDS church. Uh, fundamentalist, liberal, feminist. He was very open to carrying all of those. And as well, he was very friendly to all those kind of customers. So, you know, any kind of somebody that was even related to Mormonism, even in their earlier years, he was always very friendly and open and welcoming to them. And Brent mentioned to me was that everybody was welcome at the table with Kurt. And I think uh -huh. that speaks yeah. to him. Now, I just wanted to ask, is this book available at Benchmark Books? As far as I know, if it isn't, you know, I still talk to them once in a while. If they get orders, I'll be glad to take them in because I have some here. Okay, so maybe folks, um, if you're interested, uh, check it out at Benchmark Books. We'll find out if uh, I can talk to Chris too to make sure that there's some copies right, there too. Right, thank you. Um, so I, I also wanted to just ask you, speaking of books, um, and this book was uh, pretty groundbreaking when it came out, In Sacred Loneliness uh, by Todd Compton. Maybe just talk a little bit about this book and your thoughts on it. Well, that, that was really interesting when that came out. I, how Does it say a year that it came out? It, it came must, out in the 90s. Let me check. 20 years ago or something? Yeah. I think in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell me, just give me your thoughts on this book and how important of a, the book it was. Yeah. Well, anyway, when that book came out, it, briefly, it talks, it has a chapter about each of Joseph Smith's wives. And for sure, the, he came to the conclusion there were 33. And that's varied. Michael Quinn says one thing, and you know they all vary just maybe one or two. Uh, then some probable wives. And in the beginning, I think it's the beginning of the book or the end, there's a very valuable chart that lists all the wives that they were married, by whom, you know, I mean, a whole row of information about each wife. Um, that's, that's the reason I asked when it came out, because it was quite a while ago before any conversation publicly about Joseph Smith having wives. And they, a lot of people thought Brigham Young started plural marriage in the church. Um, so we just put the book on our counter so that everybody that came in uh, came up to the counter to buy a book or talk to an employee or something, and they would see it. It's very prominent. And so I only work two, three days a week. And uh, out of the times that I was there, I can't count how many, well over two or 300. Uh, usually they were very uh, strong, traditional LDS people. And they come in and pick up this book and, oh, what's this about? And so I would explain, well, it's about the wives of Joseph Smith. I wish I could have had a camera to get the looks on their faces. Now, these are long-term Mormons, most of them, uh, that have been raised in the church their impression was that Brigham Young had initiated plural marriage in the church. So when I done that, it was one of disbelief. They just couldn't believe that Joseph Smith actually taught it and lived it. And I showed them the chart and the evidence and they left, uh, you know, I mean, that's part of history. It shouldn't be too much of a shock, but it was to many of the people that we had as customers. So it was, kind of entertaining for us as an employees um, to see the reaction to the, our customers when they found out that there was a whole book written on his wives. 
So here is the chart. I thought that, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and here's the chart that you were talking about. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and it goes on pages and and it gives you uh, interesting information about each one. Oh, of I made books. a copy of it and put it in my purse for quite a while because people just. I was amazed at how many long-term Mormons did not know Joseph Smith had plural wives. And the book came out in 1997. 19, okay, thank you. So that's seven, seven, well, that's over 20, about 25 years. 25 years, yeah. Yeah, and um, anyway, and that was just my part-time experience. I mean, you multiply that by another double that. So it was interesting. So my, uh, I have contacts with Hannah Stoddard and Kimberly Watson of the Joseph Smith Foundation. And from my understanding, they are in the process of publishing books about each and every one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. Um, so that, that's an pro ongoing project that they're working on as well. So I just wanna let my audience so, know uh, that- each, a book on each wife? I think just... that they just came out with, I forget which wife they wrote up, but they wrote a book, a full-size book. So they're actually, I think, I think their goal is, is to write a book on each one of his wives, or at least- I didn't make, know there was that much information on some of them to write have, a whole book. It's interesting, a project. I'll, I'll, get, I'll try to clarify exactly what they're, but the, the intent is, uh -huh. I know they've written one book so far about one of his wives, and I think that's what they're trying to do because they, they even though they're, they're, church of, they're members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they also feel that uh, in their mind, the practice of polygamy was very important. It was sacred, and they want to get out to the rest of the, to the mainline, if you will, the LDS church, uh, the story, get these stories out there, which I find very fascinating. Well, of course, whole books, many of them have been written on his first wife, Emma, mm -hmm. also Eliza Arshnell, which was um, you know, very definitely proved that he was sealed, she was sealed to him as a wife. Uh, those are the two probably better known ones. Uh, I just didn't know there was enough material to write a whole book on some of the others. Um, this brings me to a subject that I would like to mention. Um, because of the fact, even in fundamentalist circles, um, it was unclear whether you had to live celestial plural marriage in order to get to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. So I told Audra and I said, maybe we ought to write a book about just quotes from and scriptures from early leaders that said, basically, bottom line, in order to get to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you have to live celestial plural marriage, not just plural marriage like they do over in Pakistan or India or someplace, which, you know, over three quarters of the countries in the world, polygamy is not against the law, but it's a whole different perspective because they do it as a culture or a tradition or something like that. Whereas we as fundamentalists live it for really mainly religious reasons. So, I decided, he said, well, why don't you go ahead and gather some quotes? And so I did. And I came out with a little paperback book called An Essential for Exaltation. And in that are, um, I think it was over 30 quotes uh, from leaders of the church and even 131 and 132 in the DNC, where it definitely says that. Now, I know people are going to think, oh, boy, you think you're better than everybody else. But, you know, when you live plural marriage, and I found this from experience and talking to a lot of people, there's a greater responsibility upon you to live that righteously. And um, it doesn't mean that just because you're living plural marriage, you've got it made. It means celestial plural marriage. It means righteously. Um, and I, I know families both ways. Some of them live very righteously and others not so much. But um, I... 
I don't want people to get the wrong idea, but those are quotes that were taught in the early days of the church that that was essential. Yeah, so one of the things I did was my, my mother is 82 years old, and uh, I asked her to uh, read your book and also um, uh, also in Sacred Loneliness book. And, uh, and, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I want to, a, a few years ago when you were on Gospel Tangents, uh, my mom watched your interviews and she, she thought you were interesting, but she said, Jesus was married. I'll tell you what, Steve, that just, I draw the line there. I, Jesus wasn't married, you know? And then she was reading uh, your book and she said, you know, Steve, I, I don't agree with it, but she said, I believe in the Bible. And if the Bible says something that I'm not comfortable with, I'm going to go with the Bible. My mom, you know, she's like a Bible believing Christian. Sure. And she said, these women believe in their scriptures and that's what they're following and practicing. So she was trying to find a way she could understand where they were coming from. In other words, maybe that they're just obeying their scriptures. Well, it's an interpretation of scriptures. Like I, I mentioned, when Jesus is married to Right when Jesus, when his book, Jesus Was Married, came out, our first copy went to Joseph Yoning Smith because we knew how he felt about it. We mm -hmm. went up to the church office building at that time. It was much more open. This is in 59. Yeah, 59. Um, we went. Uh, uh, I'm busy. Call back. Um, uh, so we went up to his office, talked to the secretary. The door was open into President Smith's office. He was president of the Quorum of the Twelve at that time. We showed her the book and said we would just like to present him with a copy of this book. She went in. We saw her go in. He motioned us to come in. Ogden and I went in and presented him with a copy of the book. Well, from the title, Ogden just said, well, he wanted a response. And he said, what do you think about that? And I'll never forget the words, and I quote them word for word. Absolutely, it could be no other way. The account of his marriage is right in the New Testament, referring to the marriage of Cain. Now, true, he wasn't a, a prophet or a prophet. Well, he wasn't the president of the church, but he was a scriptorian, and he was known as a scriptorian for the church at that time. Um, and there are others, um, many other not just early leaders, but even some current ones. But the church has said, don't talk about it. It's too controversial. We don't have enough information on it. And that's why Ogden was really as communicating the church because of that book, because the church didn't have a, a definite opinion one way or the other. And so they didn't want somebody coming out with the book uh, to that effect. And people were, um, of course, Ogden had written six books before he was actually as communicated in 72. But uh, he was getting more and more well-known and writing the church offices. Well, what about this doctrine? Ogden um, says this and has all this evidence, but you don't teach it. And so it was getting somewhat embarrassing, I think, for the church to. And so what they would do is just say, well, he's been excommunicated from the church. Don't read his books. I mean, that's just it in a nutshell. And I don't mean to be negative of the church, but we kind of expected that because Ogden um, knew that he was teaching things that were in the early days and not today. And so there was a conflict. And so he knew that he'd probably eventually have to give up his membership. Hmm. Um, so first of all, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you know, I think it's an important thing to have these stories be told. Uh, you, 
not only was Ogden a very important person, but I have to say you were a very important person too, because you did a lot of research, you contributed a lot of things to, uh, so that people have a better understanding of the history of the church, its early days, and the beliefs and practices of the principle in the early days of the church. Now, I have people on my program who do not believe that Joseph Smith uh, practiced polygamy, and that's fine. You know, we can have those conversations as well with people. Uh, and But it's important that we just hear all those voices and present all the evidence and have a conversation. Um, I just want to thank you for the work that you've done. I, it's been a real joy. I can honestly say, you know, a lot of times, um, what we're even told in the church, find out what your mission is and then do it honorably. And I've talked to a lot of people, I don't know what my mission is. I, there was never any doubt after I started working, marrying Ogden and being sealed to him. It was not a legal marriage. Um, and working with him, I thought, this is my mission. And I'm so glad. And it, it really made me happy. Besides, I'd learned a lot. Um, and I never doubted what my mission was, except after he died. Then I kind of wondered. But then when we formed Principal Voices, and for 20 years, we were talking about the real side of plural marriage and uh, doing away with the stereotypes and all that, that that was a very minor part of some of the people that lived it. Unfortunately, it made it bad for the rest of us because that's all people would hear. And so that's why we wrote our book. That's why we pressed for decriminalization. That's why we spoke to people uh, upon request. Um, we never forced ourselves or anything like that on people. But you'd be surprised how many people really wanted to hear us talk because uh, they hadn't heard that side of the story. So um, I've been very glad for the mission that I feel like I've had. And uh, I'm just turned 86, so I don't know how much longer that'll be, but um, I'm game to continue as long as the Lord wants me to. Wow, it's so wonderful to just have this conversation with you. And yeah, 86, congratulations, that's just, wonderful that you've lived a full life and it sounds to me like you've lived the life with no regrets absolutely i don't regret well there might be little tiny things just like everybody but basically i look back on my life and i have 17 eight and a half by 11 scrapbooks that i've kept a history of all that we've done as principal voices newspaper clippings uh, presentations we've done i mean it's the only history around and so I feel like this is something I like to do is collect information as it happens. And we've been up to uh, the, the Capitol building and lobbied and spoke to the Judiciary Committee. And it wasn't just two years ago when it was decriminalized. We laid the groundwork for that for 20 years. And we finally got people to realize, gosh, these are reasonable people. They aren't breaking any other laws. You know, They don't deserve to be called felons. We agree. <laughs> so I was wondering, this this collection of yours that you have, have you made plans to what you want to do with the collection? Well, when Principal Voices started, we decided one of the things we'd like to do is get, we had so many various fundamentalist groups that were not working together at all. In fact, they were quite uh, divisive about their leader was the only one that had the priesthood and so forth. We thought this is something, this group decriminalization is something we could all work on together. So we, long story short, we eventually got two members, representatives from each of the groups 
and independence, and then the three of us from Principal Voices. If you can imagine three women starting something like this. But anyway, it was an agreement with the leaders. We went to the leaders of each of the groups, said, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to work in common. We don't want to change the leadership of your group or the organization, but we'd like to find something in common and decriminalization is the one thing that we have in common. So once a month for a while, the two representatives from each of the groups would meet here in my house and then we'd discuss different options and things and then they would go back to the leaders and talk about it and then we'd meet. It was kind of a laborious process, but whatever. Uh, we wanted everybody on board. And I'll tell you, that was really a thrill to be, that's what Ogden wanted to do. And I, I, I know he was in favor of that. So we did work on things together. And it was very harmonious. We were able to make friends from other groups that we hadn't done before. I don't know what got me on this subject, but I did want you to know that Principal Voices did other things besides just write that book. Um, and uh, so it was because of the, we called it the Principal Rights Committee. And it was through them that we got groups up at the Capitol building. I mean, we got one uh, over a hundred people at one of the Judiciary Committee meetings. And um, anyway, it's a long story, but I mean, we really got our people to unify about this decriminalization. And I think that's one reason it passed a couple of years ago is because there had been enough background laid that people could see the benefit. So uh, just back up a little bit, because one of the part of the question was about like, the collection, like you said, the top, like the 17 plus oh, right. scrapbooks. What do you uh, think you're really so donating to? So the reason I got into that, that's what was, Joe Darger was elected, he's an independent, and he was kind of elected the head of our principal rights committee. And he's kind of been the leader of the lobbying and everything up at the Capitol building. I uh, have talked to him and I would just give that information to him. Okay. Because then, his family will continue. He has his wives and all are very much uh, in favor of promoting, you know, the positive side of this. And so uh, I would just give it to him because I think it would um, stay in his family or, you know, have, because none of my family would be interested, none of my children. So I just give it to him and then he could decide what to do with it. So have you ever thought about writing an autobiography or a biography of Ogden? No, Brown? Ogden didn't want to write one and I don't want to write him. What it does, uh, it has its good things, but neither one of us like to toot our own horn. It's the information that we put out in the books that was important. And some people ask him over and over again, why don't you write your life story? And um, he said, it's not about me. I'm the message bearer. Um, he was called by some people a Joseph Smith Mormon, and he didn't want to call attention to himself. And he didn't want to be considered anybody other than an author or a compiler. He was an excellent speaker. Um, and so we don't want to write about ourselves. Well, Signature Books is writing a book about Gerald and Sandra Tanner. I wonder if the time will come when they'll do a similar treatment of you guys. I think you, I know you don't want to toot your own horn, but you played an important role in the 20th and 21st century of, I mean, you, you really modernized modern fundamentalism. Well, we were part of that. There were a lot of people that have contributed to that. Well, 
And I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I just wanted to know, do you have any final words you'd like to share with my audience? Uh, well, like I told you when you asked if I'd come on your program, I said, well, I pretty much decided that that part of my mission is coming to a close. You know, I've done a lot of interviews and the information is out there with John Flynn and Rick Bennett. And um, I felt like I told my story so that if anyone really wanted to hear it, they could go to those two sources. But I don't know, the more I thought about it, the more I talked to you, um, said you wanted to ask maybe some different questions. And so I thought, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. So thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony and uh, talk about my favorite subject. <laughs> um, and I think you're doing a good work. I admire you. I'd never uh, heard much about you until you called, but thank you very much for this opportunity. Well, thank you for coming on, and I appreciate it. And I just want uh, uh, to remind my audience that to like and subscribe, and don't forget to hit the notification button to be informed when a new episode uh, comes out. Also, just want to remind you that we are now on major podcast platforms, including Apple and Google. Uh, and also, my email address is mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. And for those of you who would like to financially support my channel, don't forget we do have a Patreon page where you can make monthly contributions of five, in multiples of five, ten, or fifteen dollars. And really, really do I really do appreciate my viewers and subscribers and my Patreons. I'm very close to getting monetization on our YouTube channel. So if you're a viewer and you're not a subscriber, please consider subscribing to the channel. Uh, and thanks again for coming on. Thank you. And I enjoyed it and hope to keep in touch with you. Oh, absolutely. And uh, when next time I get out to Utah, I would like to meet you. Oh, I would like that very much. Maybe so, you and Allison and I can get together. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you okay. again. And everybody, uh, you have yourself a great day and we will see you next time.